0: Hello, My name is Sabah Fatma and I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. And you're listening to the podcast, She Speaks Academic Muslimas. In this podcast, we will interview a different academic muslima every week. where we'll have conversations about all things academic, women and Muslims and everything in between. A little bit about myself. I do a lot of research on Muslim or Muslim American issues within a framework of race and feminist theory. Today, we are going to be talking to uh, Dr. Sana Rizvi. Uh, Welcome, Sana. Hello. Hey, asalaamu alaikum. as salam. So can you go ahead and tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself?
1: Okay, so uh, first off, um, I'm a lecturer at University of Exeter uh, in Education Division, and I research educational experiences of minority communities in UK at the intersection of race, religion, and other social inequalities.
0: Excellent, um, and a uh, little bit more disclaimer, I think. Uh, Is that we are
1: sisters (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's just get that out of the way yes we are sisters
0: (laughs) yes yeah blood sisters uh, from two years apart yeah a couple years apart Uh so um, so I wanted to ask you you know I know a lot of immigrants have very complicated journeys into academia Mm -hmm. and I know that yours isn't much of an exception to that rule uh, can you tell us a little bit about, your, uh, about yourself and how you came to be where you are at today?
1: Um, I think it's a long story, but I'll make it very short. Um, I think I came into UK academia formally in 2010. Before that, I was uh, actually a credit analyst working in a bank in Pakistan. And when I got pregnant with my son, I really wanted to reevaluate all my career choices at that particular point in time. I really didn't enjoy what I was doing. Uh, I wasn't feeling fulfilled, I should say. And um, we were also, you know, my husband is a a British citizen as well. So at that point in time, we had some financial difficulties. We also had some life-threatening situation. Our property had been seized by a land mafia and our lives were under threat. So we had to... Quickly move out of Pakistan as soon as possible. And during this time, I was applying to master's program in education because that's where I was really interested. Um, and so I got into University of Birmingham. I also got into Can- Canadian universities at that point, I remember. but uh, and, and the idea of going to Canada was enticing. But I couldn't afford it because the housing cost is just expensive. Accommodation, you know, having a young kid. So I chose Britain because my in-laws were already settled in Birmingham, and that would sort of help with my housing cost. And then, so I did my master's. By the end of my master's, my supervisors were really, um, you know, really terrific, really supportive. They said, you know, I should consider doctoral studies. And to be honest, I was drawn to doctoral studies. I really loved the idea of researching in education, Um, but I couldn't afford it, and nor was I eligible for scholarships. And uh, why I think. That? Well, it was because I was neither here nor there. So I was, I was a student I was, in a, stu- I was in a not on a student visa because I was on a spousal visa because my husband was British, right? And so, I, if I was on a student visa, I would have been eligible for Commonwealth scholarships. And because I was not a UK citizen yet, I was not eligible for any UK scholarships. So, I had to make a very careful. You know, I had to think about this very carefully because it was a very, very big financial decision for us. So I did not jump into my doctoral studies straight away. I did work in a special school very briefly. And obviously, after working there quite briefly, I realized, you know, you know what, I'm not enjoying as much as I should my I really want to do, you know, something in academia. And so I applied for doctor programs. By this time, I was somewhat in the process of getting my citizenship, but still like five years apart, you know, five years away. And so I applied to Cambridge and I got in and that was like a big deal. I mean, it was. Yeah, Cambridge is a big deal. No, I mean, it was a big deal for me because i never <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> it was, I, I really thought they made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think huge for you, it was it was beautiful. It was, but it was very overwhelming. And I think, uh, but that's part of the Cambridge allure. And you know, the first few months, they really go out of their way to tell you um, that whatever you're feeling, it is. It is right and it justifies because this is Cambridge University we're talking about. And believe me when I say this, what are you doing? Uh, when I was in my orientation for uh, college, for their, you know, you have to be a member of their college. So again, you have to, you know, to be familiar with how Cambridge University works. It's quite different. if You have to be a member of a college as well as, you know, pay the tuition fees for university. It's just very complicated. And I remember sitting in my orientation and they said, to a group of students, and these were majority of them international students, and it was an all-women's college within Cambridge University, and they said that if you think that someone's going to come and quickly you know, tap on your shoulder and tell you that a mistake has been made in the admissions process, don't worry, this is the right place and you've made it. And we just all looked at each other in that moment in time and we said, no one is thinking like that, but you just made us realize, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> For making us feel very, very overwhelmed and making us feel like an imposter, <laughs> and I think part of that, you know, so it sort of made me get, you know, really scared about working and doing assignments. So the first four, the first few months, I was really scared of submitting any assignment because this was Cambridge University, um, wow. and I think. But when when we talked amongst our, you know, friends and most of my friends were international students. Uh, I think they were going through that same phase and, you know, we we got over that phase, but it was completely unnecessary. I think after having been, you know, to Cambridge, after I got that academic capital, I'm able to critique it and realize how elitist it was. And, uh, you know, that allure, that that, you know, that image that it's the best in the world. I mean, they literally do make you feel like you're, you know, you're quite lucky to be in there. But actually, <laughs> you you got in because you were that good, you know. So, yeah. um, but it's obviously they don't they will never say that. But it's just you know how they come across. But. So
0: how come you didn't stay there for your PhD? I know your PhD is from... Uh, Bristol. Of Bristol. Bristol.
1: I went completely broke at Cambridge. Cambridge is the most expensive city. I don't know how people live there, honestly. So the first year, I was quite lucky. My 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 youngest brother was working. Our youngest brother, I should say, was working in Cambridge. And he was kind enough to share the housing costs. So we were living in a two-bed apartment. So me, my son, him, and my husband, <laughs> we were living in a two-bed <laughs> apartment. Um, and... Honestly, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be able to afford Cambridge uh, at that point in time. We pulled together all our savings and my husband paid for the tuition fees. And then at the end of the year, so Cambridge makes you do the master's all over again. Yeah, that's one of the things that make you do, regardless of whether you have a distinction or a masters in from another Russell group, one University, they make you do it so that you can go on to their PhD program. Yeah, I know. Um, so at the end of the year, when I had qualified and I'd made the mark for the PhD program, I honestly thought you know, unless I take a loan, I can't, I can't survive. There is literally no way I can stay here. Um, and again, because my, my citizenship, citizenship status was so uncertain, I was not a U.S., U.K. citizen, citizen, nor could I apply for Pakistani scholarships. I was just, you know, again, you know, doing this. Pink. Yeah, exactly. So I, I started applying to other Russell Group universities. In U.K., they are, I guess they're the, your equivalent of r universities in, in USA. And I got into University of Bristol and University of Sheffield for full scholarship. And and I was so relieved when I heard that. So I, I chose Bristol because a lot of my friends were going there. I heard good reviews and the supervisor seemed very, you know, hands on, very nice, supportive. And so, yeah, I decided to go to Bristol. I finally finished my PhD in 2000 and end of 2000 and, oh my God, 2016, I think. Um and
0: so post post finishing up your PhD, you started applying for jobs. Um I know that, you know, there were job applying for anybody in academia can be quite oh, yeah. dispiriting oh yeah
1: I mean that's yeah,
0: the uh, of jobs, job application that we can talk about but I wanted to maybe focus on uh, appearance a little bit uh, because I know that we've had several private conversations about that
1: yeah I mean ourselves. you know as a student as a doctoral student I never thought about appearances I mean the max I thought about my appearance let me just tell you the readers that or the listeners, actually, I should say, I am five, six. I am what you would call obese. Uh, I am huge. Um, I have a very broad bone structure. Um, and I never thought about my appearance as a student because, well, the max I thought was, okay, I'll dress up for my presentations or conferences and that's it. I think it became slightly more of a concern when I started applying for jobs. And whilst it's not at all like Pakistan, where your picture actually goes out with your CV, <laughs> oh, we've been through that phase as well. <laughs> uh, but but it, it is in many ways, you know, about networking, people who you know, people who see you on an everyday basis, people who've seen you you know, teach.
0: And and, it, and nowadays, I mean, if you want to look up a candidate, you just essentially Google
1: them, and then you see their picture. And, exactly, you know. exactly. And then I began to realize, oh my god, I just, you know, I'm not the academic material. I mean, firstly, I don't wear suits and skirts and stuff. I just dress up in jeans and something smart and modest and just show up. But it, I, my hugeness became a worry for me because I thought it will be noticed by people and. And it's not that people have actually commented on it actively, like they would in, in a, in a South Asian community that I'm part of or in Pakistan. It's very different. Uh, but it's just that, you know, it becomes very visible in, in academic spaces. For instance, if, if you're meeting your, your department meeting is at the top floor, everybody's decided to take the stairs and you're like, Oh, great. No, I don't want to take the lift in front of everyone. So I'll just walk up the stairs a flight of stairs with everyone by the time i reach i'm panting i'm out of breath and i'm sweating <laughs> and you know i have to make some comment to sort of make myself you know make everyone feel comfortable that the, that i'm breathing so loudly and i have to say oh my god i sweat like a pig or oh my god i have to start dieting from tomorrow i mean it's not that they say something but it's something on my mind it's the chairs it's the space you know everybody can quickly squeeze into you know small corners and small spaces in a in a meeting and i and i obviously sit next to the door in a space in a chair that's comfortable enough that it that can take my weight and right yeah i mean it
0: so I mean it's uh, so these self-deprecating remarks are almost like a self-defense mechanism Yeah, to... yeah, I
1: mean and uh, the other thing is obviously I research around, you know, social inequalities and I teach courses on special needs. So I'm very well aware of the fact that you know, academia is as liberal as you can be in the ideal world. You know, right outside academia, you come across different viewpoints, right? And so I, I know my colleagues will never say something explicit that is fat, pho- you know, fat phobic or something. But I also know that they are so different to me in, you know, in their bodies. They're, they're thin, they're slim, and they're, they fit, and they go yoga, and they do these kind of things. And I don't all do. I don't do any of those things, you know. (laughs) They go to, you know, they go and do amazing, you know, physical stuff, and I I like doing physical stuff. But it's just that if I do it, I feel like it has to be attached to fitness; otherwise, it it doesn't count. So I guess I'm very aware of it, and I try not to sort of be very, you know, conscious of this when I'm teaching with my students, because obviously my students have. you know, they, they have different sizes, different body types and everything. And I don't want to project my own insecurities on them either. So it's, it's, but it is something that I feel when I'm hanging around with my colleagues. And I feel like, okay, like, very recently, I was trying this new thing, like healthy, clean eating, and almost everyone noticed it. And it was so surprising that they were rooting for, <laughs> I mean, they were like, oh, my God, that salad looks really healthy. Oh, this thing looks really nice. Uh, but I just wondered whether, you know, if, if, for instance, if I eat a chocolate, and I love chocolates, by the way. <laughs> so I just feel like they would probably frown on it, you know, and I don't like eating in front of my colleagues because of this particular reason that I don't want to feel judged about my choices right. so i normally typically go outside eat in a you know or eat in my cubicle when no one's around a couple of things i want to point out one
0: is that i thought it was really funny that you mentioned yoga because you know yoga is something that is now associated with like upper class white women when yeah actually started in south asia in india yeah you know and i don't know if you remember like our mom Uh, had a book on yoga uh, from, you know, uh, from India. And she used to like, you know, uh, I don't remember her doing the yoga, but I do remember her doing yoga poses once in a while. Like she wasn't a regular yoga person, but she's the farthest thing from an upper class white woman. So it's, it's funny how our perceptions of, uh, who does yoga has now shifted now that we live in the rest. Yeah, no, I would even say
1: that, the, you know, the perception of what yoga is now is quite different, even in Pakistan. So I'm part of this really big community, uh, virtual community on Facebook. And you see the kind of capital that sort of invests in these, you know, uh, exercises, those that can afford yoga, those that can afford a personal trainer. Yeah. You know, it's not, the, it's not like someone like me. Not it's not yeah. someone like me who, yeah. who you know, 20 years ago, I could not have afforded that person. So I do think in Pakistan, yes, the kind of fat phobia you get is quite explicit. And it's very much attached to, I would say, your marriage ability and, and youth and, and to your partner. Um, and I think it's very much enmeshed in cultural you know, practices and cultural understanding of what an ideal woman should be.
0: Yeah. So, so two different perception of fatness. You're yeah, saying yeah. then one within the you know white academic world that yeah. we live in that predominantly, like I said, is is, is white and
1: more uh, to do with the and then, more to do with the movements in you know in the academic world is to do with I would say you know clean eating, vegan and vegan you know I don't know all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of food you know kind of uh, practices or whatever and and you won't hear that kind of thing in in
0: yeah looking competent and all of that yeah. good stuff uh I, I mean good in quotes here and then um and then in the south asian community the perception of fatness is very very different like so you said nobody in your department would say or in your school would say anything fat phobic explicitly but you feel this invisible yeah. pressure constantly people are looking at you in a south asian community it's very explicit. <laughs> uh, I- I I don't know, like, uh, like our lives in, in 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 within South Asian communities revolve around eating.
1: I think. Well, actually, uh, would you our agree lives, eating, our you lives know? do revolve around eating because I think. Part of it is to do with culture, part of it's to do with religion. We love the idea of families sitting together on the table, you know, inviting people over. Right. And, the, and and we talk about barakah, you know, the blessing of, of inviting people, having guests in your house and eating together and breaking the bread together, you know. So it has some sort of religious right. significance as well. So in Pakistan, yes, rel- eating is, I would say, you know, it's one of the entertainments, I would say. Um yeah. It
0: is an entertainment, I mean, we don't, uh, many, most Muslims don't drink. There are no clubs, and I mean, there
1: are, there would be clubs, but, you know, they're only accessible to elite, elite, very elite, certain kind of group, but, yeah, so the only form of entertainment people have is either the movies in Pakistan, or I would say the food industry. Um...
0: So then, what does fat phobia look like in a South Asian community? You think
1: I think fat phobia is very much tied to the fact uh, of what you are as a woman for your husband, and we, well, you know, and if you don't have a husband, what you can do to your marriage prospects. Um, and and I think it's tied to the fact of letting yourself go. So this idea of youth, you know, oh my God, what did you do to yourself? Did you just have, you know, I have been told several times that have I given birth to five kids? Um, and I've got just one, um, and one is enough for me. But it's it's this idea of oh my God, what did you just do after marriage? You know what happened and. Um, it's also about looking attractive for your husband. A lot of times, I've I've gotten you know comments about okay, you know you you need to really look after yourself because you, you're starting to look like your husband's mom, and uh, oh, wow. um, yeah. so I mean, that's a really good comment for anybody to make.
0: I mean, I'm thinking that in either context, it looks like you know treating your self worth as a commodity yeah. tied to. Tied to a certain yeah. looks. It's
1: it, um, the interesting the thing, thing in is, general. I mean, people talk about parallel worlds. I, I don't think they're parallel worlds because, you know, when I go over to uh, on on weekends, I go to another city where my husband's in laws are based. I I, you know, that's my personal fa- personal family life. And so when I talk about food or you know you know how overweight or whatever it is, it it's not like it's so compartmentalized that I have to bring back that conversation and I've forgotten where I left it. It is almost, you know, very, very dynamic way of talking about fatness and, oh, do you really want to eat that? Or, you know, um, what's this? I'm on this new diet. Okay, you should try this too. I mean, my mom's over. I mean, our mom's over, I should say. And she, the, the minute she came to my house, she unmasked she this amazing, big, giant-sized bottle that claims to sort of help you shed weight a lot, like lots <laughs> and it was like i think she was expecting to, me to say thank you and i was just shocked obviously like always <laughs> but that's how it is you know it's not rude it's it's yeah. something like uh, i don't know how to describe it it's
0: not considered rude but it it it, it is very It is not considered
1: rude and a lot of people do it out of their goodwill and good intentions and because they care for you like i would say my mom a lot of whatever she does for me It comes out of a good place in her heart that she wants me to be healthy and she wants me to look young like those people she sees in her uh, gazillion people in her family, you know, on Facebook who look amazing in their 50s. And she was like, why can't you be like this? And, you know, it's it comes from a place of I want my kids to do better. So it's very hard to explain that. Fat phobia to a white audience because they might perceive that as oh my god that's so intrusive that's so rude. Well, it's not because my family's opinion still matters to me. You know, I I don't when they say something like this, I don't just say okay, I'm must yeah must engage. yeah must I'm I'm cutting you out of my life now and I'm just gonna walk out. No, that's not gonna happen.
0: <laughs> right. I mean then then I mean the other the other aspect is that while it's not rude it is still it still chips away at it something does in the sense that like you said like oh my mom wants me to have a good life but then what does this good life entail for her or what does her conception of good life entail for you and it it seems like you're saying it entails being a particular body yeah. size as opposed to let's say yeah i mean healthy. there is a very famous um, pro uh,
1: saying you know i'm my i'm my Ancestors' wildest dreams. I'm. I, I. I. do genuinely believe that my mother. She comes from a, a very different time, and she has also internalized all these things around, you know, fatness and colorism, and you know, all these issues. She's de- deeply internalized, and obviously, she wants me to sort of cross those boundaries and and emerge as a winner where she hasn't. Um, and so that's why I feel like I don't think I can justify or I, I don't think I should justify it to an audience of what my family mean, you know, means when they're trying to comment on fat, you know, fatness. I think because they they have experienced fatness and they have experienced being uh, bullied for fatness or for being too dark or for being too huge, you know, I, I don't think it's a fair comparison yeah. to say, oh, my God, that's so rude of them to say or that's so backward of them to say. But, yeah, it is very tricky. Mm. I mean, it, in, in, in academia, I think it's to do with the fact that ac- academic structures, physical academic structures like buildings, seats, you know, conference spaces, even a lift that you and I shared in London, I remember, man. It was the most, it was <laughs> the most, firstly, it was the most, the I know, and it, it claimed to fit three. Like, how? Huh? <laughs> I was like, why? You know, if you wanna shame someone, just put them in this lift because you couldn't even turn in that lift. And it was just I think I think it was an exception, Sana.
0: I mean most most places aren't <laughs> like that, obviously. But yeah, you're right that uh, maybe most elevators might not be like that, but many, my, many, other spaces that we occupy are co- very confined, like airplanes, like our chairs in our conference rooms. Oh, and, com- you know, I mean, traveling and- is another
1: issue. I mean, when I travel for conferences, I, the whole journey is the most painful. I I have endometriosis as well, so I guess when on the days that I'm traveling, it gets you know, it obviously will you know, make it worse for me. But when I'm traveling, I'm so aware that I am this overweight person that I do not, firstly, when I sit down, I do not move out of my chair, but also my hands are wrapped around myself. Like, I don't want to lean over accidentally or cause someone discomfort. So my entire journey in an airplane is just physically very, very, you know, yeah. 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 So, yeah,
0: I mean another aspect of the appearance part that I wanted to, um, you know, touch on that we have talked uh, about uh, over the years is, oh, yeah. is hijab, and yeah, so both of us are not hijabis. Do you want to tell what hijabi um, is? And um, you know, a hijabi is a person who uh, wears a headscarf around their head, uh, and in the Western context, it usually is like a tight wrap around uh, around the uh, around the face and the face is visible. In other contexts, um, hijab might manifest itself differently. Like, you know, in a chadar, you, some of your hair might show. Like in Pakistan, you wear yeah. a chadar generally. And so some show, but then the rest of your body will yeah. be covered by the chadar. Uh, but in hijab, it's mostly your face uh is showing and then your hair is covered and then it generally hijab seem to end at shoulder length in yeah. western context but uh, neither of us are hijabi but our elders, uh, eldest uh, yeah. sister is and um i want to talk about hijab within academia but then also hijab within our uh within muslim cultures whether that be south asian yeah. arab or generally the um, muslim uh, academics black,
1: yeah, the muslim yeah so person, yeah. in academia it's funny how it plays out because firstly, I don't think many people who know me know that I'm uh, practicing uh, Muslim, Shia Muslim. I pray five times a day. I fast. I give charity. What is interesting is that the minute I tell them, they are just very surprised because I think they can only imagine a hijabi academic doing all those things. And so for me to say, um, you know, I, I, I pray and no, I don't drink, I think that gets a lot of raised eyebrows because people think, well, you know, you seem quite, you know, with us. Yeah, you seem quite normal. normal. <laughs> <laughs> you, seem, you seem okay. I, I remember one time someone was, you know, they had drinks and they were meeting and I, I, I have no issues going into a pub and sitting with my friends and discussing things. I can order water or Diet Coke. Um, and, you know, people say, aren't you going to order a drink? And when I say I don't drink, they think I don't drink because of health reasons. So, I ha- so a lot of my colleagues right. don't drink actually because, you know, they want to stay fit. They think drinking is bad. So that's fine. But when I actually say no, I, I don't drink because I really don't drink as a Muslim. I think that's where it, like oh oh interesting okay you know it's kind of a revelation for them because they're like oh so you're that kind of a Muslim I know they're thinking that they just can't say
0: it um right I do want to point out that the UK and US context is different in terms of hijab in that in UK at least in my experience and you can correct me if I'm wrong they're far more the UK culture yeah, britishers seem far more um uh well-versed in what islam is and w- what being a hijabi is and um yeah uh, you know when i in my trips to uk i saw so many hijabis i was shocked um uh, where i live in the middle of nowhere in the midwest i think i know <laughs> hijabi by name yeah. probably because they're like i mean there's so few muslim family, uh, muslim families in um Southern i would Northern also say Northern demographics either, so,
1: yeah. matter so the Democrat, the immigrate, you know the the uh, the muslim population that is right now living in uk has a very different demographic to the one that is living in usa um, and so you do tend to see a lot of people uh, wearing hijab and you are right in that the uk public is generally more aware and more inclusive because the law is generally more inclusive of you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think I think people over here know what's Sharia and don't use it just, you know, as a <laughs> Yeah, in the American sense. They also know that, you know, what's halal is fine. It's not something scary or a takeover a conspiracy or whatever. People, in fact, my colleagues eat at halal restaurants because they, you know, that's the closest to their office or they offer good food or good price. They're not scared going into halal places. Um. So generally, I mean, and and let me say the places that you did visit were in the Midlands. So I would say those are dense with uh, Muslim population is a significant minority over there. So that, that makes a difference. But if you do go into, for instance, parts of, you know, Southwest or North, you would see slightly different patterns of, um, you know, representation. But um, in terms of academia, I do think that, I mean, it's, it's funny, because like I said, academia is a very strange place. It's so liberal in its thinking and it's, and it claims neutrality and it's, and it claims being woke and all and everything. And, and yet, you know, when it comes to this hijab concept, I think people still have a lot to learn about what it is and people still have a lot to learn about what it means to be a Muslim woman. Um, I, I, for instance, I don't wear hijab, but, um, you know, I'm comfortable with handshakes. I'm not comfortable with hugs. Um, I explicitly take my hand out to male colleagues just to signal to them that you know, please don't hug me. This is my this is my handshake. But some of them do try and attempt to hug because they think I'm just being shy. You know. <laughs> Or, or oh, come on, Sana, it's okay with you. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I, I think they would never do this with a hijabi person. So I think there is a certain kind of image and, and um, attached to a hijabi academic. I don't think anyone would dare, you know, attempt to hug someone who's wearing a hijab in academia. Uh, But, you know, male colleagues do it all the time. They try and attempt and they think, you know, I'm just being shy or I'm just, you know, being pretentious or, um, yeah.
0: So I do want to mention here that um, there's also a lot of uh, Islamophobia when it comes to uh, Islamophobic uh, incidents when it comes to hijab, especially within the American context, but also within the UK context where uh, I know both our governments are, um, on the right, right wing, and uh, there's a lot of rhetoric where Boris Johnson, I know, referred to women who wear niqab as letterboxes and obviously...
1: Bank robbers. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, of course, President Trump uh, has uh, made uh, many uh, strange comments about Muslims in general uh, and geared up a lot of Islamophobia. And uh, his entire, not entire, but a big part of his campaign was based on the on instituting the Muslim ban so there is a lot of Islamophobia when it comes to hijab, but I want to talk about that possibly in a later episode. Um, right now, I also want to talk about uh, hijab within Muslim context and in Muslim cultures and straddling that world where
1: we are non-hijabis within the Muslim world. Yeah, and I mean, the first one that we have to experience is, again, the academic world. Uh, we know there are lots of Muslim women academics who do wear hijab. And obviously, you know, there is we want to build solidarity across not just, you know, uh, as women as a collective group, but, you know, within women, you have black uh, black Muslims, you have, you know, South Asian Muslims. So uh, obviously, you also have I also feel there is something to prove here about. Being a Muslim, you know what does it mean to be a Muslim, and oftentimes I remember in Bristol I was still a student, and there was this student, um, and she was she used to wear a hijab, and and she was shocked to learn that I was a Muslim as well, and I was a practicing Muslim, and how she found out was because we both were fasting, and she assumed I was not fasting, and then she asked me, and I said no 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 I am fasting, and she was like oh so you are a Muslim, and I had to explain to her that yes, I am a Muslim. And firstly, I'm, you know, for, she was a Sunni Muslim, and I was a Shia Muslim. So I also had to explain that part. And I think that has its own complications, you know, that, that being a Shia in a predominantly um, Sunni space. So all the, you know, majority of the female Muslim academics who are Muslims, I would say are Sunni academics. or um, And so again, it is about you know clarifying that you are a shia which is an, a minority um and that you're also a practicing shia you know so that has um that has something is uh attached to it as well you have to i don't know how to say it but you have to prove that you are a muslim in both ways i think in 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 muslim spaces you have to prove that you are you are an authentic muslim you know you Just you are you are the mean, yeah. yeah yeah you are the authentic you're the authentic version of yourself uh, in 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 practicing, and that you're not making, you know, you're not cherry picking here, and not you're, you're not making easy compromise, you know, compromises when it comes to religion. I think that's one thing that you I find even in my personal life I have to, you know, I, I have to actively address that uh, this is not something I'm doing out of convenience, but it's actually because this is my way of life, and I genuinely believe this is my way to God, you know. Um, and I'm not questioning yours, so you shouldn't be questioning mine. Um, and, and so I guess there is that thing. And in, in, in academic spaces, like I said, you have to prove that, yes, I, you can t- take me as your liberal colleague, obviously, and I am all, you know, I, I can joke with you. And I have a great sense of humor, I hope so. And, but also, I have my boundaries because I identify as a Muslim. I will not hug you. I will not drink with you. I will not go and, you know, to different places where you know you socialize or whatever and so you have to constantly be justifying to two different groups that right. you're a Muslim and that's
0: and not I, have to fragment yourself so you be existing in those places and not fragmenting either the she aspect or the, yeah yeah uh, definitely know, the Muslim uh, or whatever aspect of your identity you feel like is is underrepresented it
1: uh, in that particular space exactly I mean the good thing i would say about uk public is that right now there is growing awareness because uh, you know there there there's been rising incidents of you know uh, bullying racism islamophobia so people people are coming to know that there is rising islamophobia people are beginning to accept that there is racism um and, and when you
0: say people you uh, i'm assuming that you probably mean like people who you know are or self-identified liberals, or self identified woke. woke, yeah. they're, they're accepting that it's more widespread than... Yes, and, and
1: they are beginning to talk about white privilege, which I think, you know, you would not have heard this conversation, I guess, five years, ten years ago. You would not have heard this conversation in academia, or in, in wider, you know, in media discourse. Now they're talking about Islamophobia and racism. Even though it's in, in, in their own way, it's not the way that we want to talk about racism and Islamophobia, but still it's, it, you can, you know, yeah. You, so I guess, but, and I guess in that ter- in that respect, you do need to build solidarity across, again, all Muslims, regardless of the fact they're hijabis, non-hijabis, whether they wear niqab, whether they don't wear niqab, you know, there are different they're different forms of, you know, exactly. I think the broader, Broader thing that we need to recognize is how do we establish solidarity, and right now I think that role is being expected of academia. That you know, as an academic, you need to sort of, you know, uh, establish real, authentic solidarity. If you're going to fight for Islamophobia, you have to fight for racism. Uh, You know, if you if you're going to fight about racism, you have to talk about colorism. If you're going to do this, so it can't be you know very very compartmentalized. You have to be talking about all issues or you're not with us, you know? And I think that's mm-hmm. the right approach. Um, so it is quite tacky, you know, it, it's quite difficult, not tacky, I would say, it's quite difficult to tread the line and to, to be a non-hijabi, self-identifying Muslim in education, talking about these issues, and still say, yeah, 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 I'm talking from my experience as a Muslim, even though my experience as a Muslim is being, you know, projected uh, exactly by by the muslim groups and by academia in general so it is quite different to talk about these experiences when you're constantly having to justify to groups that you are a muslim you are a practicing muslim you're a shia muslim yeah
0: right yeah yeah i mean i i definitely see what you mean like are you yeah are you are you a good muslim yeah and the word good quotes, uh, for either circle yeah. Uh, whether are you liberal enough for us or and are you yeah. practicing for us. So in either way, the person is kinda trapped in a double bind.
1: Yeah.
0: Hey, well, thank you so much, Sana, for no, talking you. to me. Um, for doing my very first episode of She Speaks. Um and um and for shedding a light on all these issues that impact uh, not just your life, but uh, a lot of other Muslim academics and a lot of women's lives in general.
1: Thank you. Thank uh, you for hosting me. It was lovely talking to you.
0: Same here. Hey. All right. Uh, I'll talk to you soon, possibly later today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care. Allah Hafiz. All right. Allah Hafiz.